Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So, Anne, I am so excited about our guest today, Natalie Grumat, who I only recently met but have been hearing about for, I don't know, about 20 years from my best friend from college, Jean. So, Natalie was a nanny to Jean's daughter, Stephanie, for a couple of years when she was in college. And I just feel like I have known her for years because Jean would talk about this amazing woman who was in college and was her daughter Stephanie's nanny. And I knew they'd all become like family. And I knew a few other things about Natalie. I knew she was a cancer survivor. And I still vividly remember Jean telling me that Natalie had been shot during the Las Vegas mass shooting in 2017 and was in the hospital in Vegas until she was stable enough to be airlifted home to Southern California. And even though I didn't know Natalie, I knew how important she was in Jean and Stephanie's life. And I mean, I know how I felt sucker punched with somebody I didn't even know. So as I was preparing for our conversation today, I reached out to Jean and to Stephanie to ask them for a few words they would use to describe Natalie. And what came back was that they could not possibly do her justice with just a few words. So I am not going to read the whole list because I'll take up all of our time, but I do want to share a subset of them. Tenacious, a warrior, a thriver, stubborn in the best possible way, (laughs) (laughs) loving, courageous, kind-hearted, inspirational, an amazing sister friend person, a badass, a dog mom, resilient. And that is just a very small subset of what they had to say about Natalie. So listeners, you can't see the video, but just so you know, this is the first time Natalie's hearing this and we can see her and she's got a huge smile and maybe just a little bit of like, oh my God, look on her face. So Sherry, sorry to interrupt. Keep going because this is an amazing intro. So I just want to say a few words about Natalie's work in the world and then I'm going to turn it over to her. She is a dedicated medical professional and a keynote speaker whose message is one of perseverance and whose mission is to help others Others find their inner warrior to believe in themselves and to keep fighting and moving forward. So, Natalie, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy to have you here. And I'm now going to turn it over to you to talk about your journey. Hi, Sherry and Anne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you today. And yes, Anne, you're right. It was making me emotional hearing those things because, <laughs> you know, I met Jean and Stephanie. I was, I think, 19 years old. And you think you know everything and have the whole world ahead of you. And they were such instrumental people that came into my life at a time I needed. And I have just the utmost respect for Jean. And Stephanie is like a little sister. I love her, adore her. So yes, I saw her. She was getting married last month and I got to meet Sherry in person, which Gina told me all about Sherry. So it was nice to kind of have that come together in real life. So Sherry gave us a a little bit of some of your journey. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got to where you are now. And there's definitely some twists and turns in that story. So we'd love to hear them in your own words. Thank you. I'll kind of jump from where Sherry left with Jean and Stephanie and, you know, graduated college and thought, 
I knew everything, had it all mapped out. And like in most cases in life, that is just not how it happens usually. I was 22 and met my husband, graduated college. We got married and kind of just starting to build that professional life that you work so hard through college for. And we had been married for a few years at this point and had just bought our first home. We lived in Bakersfield at the time. Jason had a job opportunity there. And I also received this great job opportunity to be the director of social services and skilled nursing facility and found this true love of working with patients and people and addressing, you know, the psychosocial needs of patients in that setting. And we were thinking about starting a family and all those great things that come into life. And I remember all of a sudden I started having this pain in my left breast area, definitely different. And we had just recently moved to that area. So I didn't really have all my normal established doctors. And I was going to the doctor to find out what was going on and kind of dismiss like, oh, well, you're too young and that's normal. I was really, I think, thrusted into this time that I had to be an advocate for myself because I realized something wasn't right. I didn't really know what was wrong, but I knew something wasn't. I want to make sure I understand. Are you saying that doctors dismissed you? So you went to see a doctor and they're like, you're too young. Don't worry about it. Exactly. So I, you know, went there and said, I'm having this really abnormal pain in my left breast. And they're like, oh, well, you don't really have a substantial family history and you're too young and cancer doesn't hurt. And kind of to appease me, they sent me, you know, because I think they realized I wasn't going to just be okay with those answers. And they sent me for an ultrasound. They said, you know, stop touching the area because you're probably irritating it. I had an ultrasound. It came back normal. I think they felt kind of like, oh, see, nothing's wrong. And I skipped my breast exams for a couple of months because I thought, well, maybe I am inflaming the area by touching it. So I followed their advice and the pain didn't go away. And then all of a sudden I found a mass and I went back and they're like, oh, it's probably like a clogged duct. It's nothing, you know, breasts can be lumpy. And I still knew something was wrong. And so I went and got a second ultrasound, came back normal. And they were like, see, everything's fine. And I'm thinking, everything is not fine. <laughs> I know something is off and it was uncomfortable. I think that we, a lot of times want to go on our merry way and believe everything's fine, even when there's an instinctual part. And I've heard you guys talk about it as kind of a whisper on some of your other shows. And it's true. There's this instinctual part of us that I think we have to listen to. And that was the case for me. And I think I was relatively still young, you know, I was only 26 And I had to say, no, something's not right. I don't know what's wrong, but something's not okay. You're 26 years old and you've got a bunch of medical professionals telling you nothing's wrong. You know something's wrong, but I'm really curious, where did you get the oomph or the courage or the moxie or whatever you want to call it to stand up to these doctors who are patronizing you? You know, I think I have a lot of incredibly strong women in my family, and we've always made it very comfortable to talk about our bodies and ourselves and what's going on with us and whether that's an emotional or physical thing going on. And I think that that helped me be comfortable with my body and talking about it because that can be really hard, especially I think in women's health. 
no, you're talking to a doctor or medical professional, but they're private things to us. And it can be uncomfortable to have those conversations. And my family always made it very comfortable. So I think that definitely helped. And yeah, I think I have very strong women in my family. And that definitely gives me courage and bravery that I will call on. And, and that was definitely one of those instances and just learning to trust that voice in you. And my voice was saying like something is wrong. So I pushed for an MRI and that's when doctors stopped telling me that I was okay. They pretty much right away saw on the MRI that I had a 2.1 centimeter mass that was cancer. They could tell by the way that it looked and they wanted to confirm by biopsy exactly what type of cancer and what other details would help them determine what I would need. And I turned 27. I had my biopsy and found out the news that I had an aggressive form of breast cancer. I'm so sorry that you had that experience. What happened next in your journey? So that was the end of August. Like I said, I just turned 27. And so September kind of became this interesting month of just test. And, you know, I had the MRI, I had a CT scan, something showed up in my lungs. I needed a PET scan. They wanted to do a bone scan because I was so young. I think that it raised a lot of different kinds of red flags for workup and finding out as much as they could about this cancer growing in my breast. And, you know, if it had metastasized and it was in my lymph nodes and what kind of treatment would be most effective. And we found out that it was an invasive form of triple negative cancer, which is less common. It is more aggressive. It's harder to treat and it's highly likely to come back. So the recurrence rates are really high. And the younger you are diagnosed, the worst prognosis you have. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm sitting in front of this oncologist and the news is just getting worse and worse. And he's basically saying like, let's see if we can get you through this first year. So October comes around and I look back and I think, how did I even get through that month? Because it was Breast Cancer Awareness Month and, you know, everything is pink and ribbons. And I'm like now living this life as a 27 year old young woman thinking, you know, that's something you never think you're going to get the call that you have cancer, especially I think when you're young. And so October just became this month where I got my port placed in my chest for chemotherapy. And I had a sentinel node biopsy where they tested my lymph nodes. And thank goodness they came back negative. I wanted to preserve my fertility. So we had my eggs removed and created embryos and froze those. And then that following week, I started chemotherapy. And by the end of the month, I was bald. So October 2007 was this huge month for me. I went through a lot of tests, procedures started chemo. And I'll tell you, October 2007 was a hard month to be bald. You know why? Why? Because Britney Spears had her famous paparazzi (laughs) meltdown. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) Yes, Yes, totally. Oh, no. And she had the umbrella and she was smashing a window. And then she (laughs) went and she did this dramatic thing where she shaved her head in front of all the paparazzi cameras. And so here I am, you know, finishing my first round of chemo. And I realized I hated wigs within like two seconds of wearing one. So I think I'm going to be brave and go to Trader Joe's. And there's Britney Spears all over all the tabloids. (laughs) 
<laughs> so many people came up to me in Trader Joe's and were like, oh my gosh, did you shave your head to dress up as Britney Spears? <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, I have chemo going on. You know, I have cancer. I just went through chemotherapy. I'm bald because of that, not because of Britney Spears. That is pretty funny, right? <laughs> <laughs> It makes me laugh now, and you have to find the humor when you're going through hard things. Laughter is medicine, and I truly believe that. And, you know, sometimes you just need that levity. You need to be able to laugh. And so, you know, obviously, I'm just really trying to find meaning in what's going on with me. And at first, you know, I'm just thinking, am I even going to reach my 30th birthday? Am I going to? be able to live this life out with my husband? Are my parents going to have to bury their only child? It was very devastating, a very dark time. And I honestly thought I was suffocating in this life. And I started meeting other breast cancer survivors and they were like oxygen to me. They literally breathe life back into me. And I just realized the power of meeting people who are going through something similar. And they just became this beacon of light to me. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for that community. I don't think I would be where I am if it wasn't for that. And I remember thinking, like, I want to get well so I can do this for other people because I realized how powerful it was to be vulnerable and share your story. And that's why, really, I, I talk about what I go through is because of that life lesson and meeting and connecting to those other breast cancer survivors and the power of their stories and the hope that it gave me. And you are walking this road that's very dark and to be able to meet other people that have walked a very similar road and made it to the other side and that they're living their life. It just gives you so much hope. And like I said, they were just these beacon of lights. And that's really what helped me get through that time. And you have these also other moments that build you. And, you know, I remember shortly after I was diagnosed we had to go to some event and I needed a pair of shoes and, you know, I'm parking and, you know, as a woman, normally shoe shopping is fun. Right. And right? I'm like, what? yeah. And I'm walking in and I'm dreading it. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm in such a dark place and I'm thinking, I'm just going to grab the first pair of shoes I see. I don't care if they're cute or comfortable. I just want a cheap pair because who knows if I'm even going to be around next season to wear oh, these shoes. Natalie. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was horrible. And I stopped myself before I opened that door to go to that store. And I thought, you know what? That's not how I want to live my life. It was definitely like a moment where I had to stop myself literally in my shoes to go get new shoes. And you know, it's funny because it's shoes. So it's a small thing, but it was big because it showed me my mindset. The mindset is so important. And I'm not saying it's easy at all. I had to say like, I don't know how much time I have left, but do I want to use the time I have left thinking that way? Like, oh, I'm going to go for the easiest, cheapest option. Or wearing shitty shoes? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the cute shoes. <laughs> Definitely no shitty shoes. <laughs> now there is a motto for life. No shitty shoes. <laughs> right. Put that on a shirt. <laughs> but no, it was, a, it was a good aha moment. It made me think, you know what? You've got this path before you. How do you want to walk it? Where do you want your head to be? You're going to have to have some kind of strength to center yourself. 
Again, listeners, you can't see Natalie, but if you saw her, you'd still wonder if she was 30 yet. And <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna blow the plot. Yes, she is now past 30. And so I'm really curious, where was the point that you realized you were going to make it to your 30th birthday? I'll be honest, it was pretty touch and go that first year. And that oncologist was right. You go through these rounds of chemotherapy and I always tell people that are newly diagnosed that want to talk to me or they have somebody that was newly diagnosed. Chemotherapy is very cumulative on your body and it's hard to bounce back. And you have a lot of side effects. Like I had some of my fingernails fall off and I had a bad infection that it landed me in the emergency room. I had mild congestive heart failure that needed some time to resolve. So you have this big mountain you're literally climbing up and you're just hoping to get to that other side and you finish chemo and you're kind of like okay now what you know in my case I had a bilateral mastectomy and you're trying to piece together your life now and it looks very different you're a different person you've changed you're kind of grieving this old you and trying to build this new life and you have your scans which we call scanxiety because you're scared each time you go in what they're going to find and hoping the cancer hasn't returned and that you've remained cancer-free or no evidence of disease. And each year, you know, was this milestone in the celebration. And I remember hitting, you know, for triple negative specifically, the first three years are most crucial to get through. And when I hit my five-year mark, we happened to be in Hawaii and my husband took me to swim with dolphins. And it was just this beautiful frame thing. And you feel like, gosh, I hit this five-year milestone, which in cancer world is huge. And your chances of reoccurrence significantly decrease. And you start to feel like, you know what? I think I'm really going to pull through. I'm really going to make it. And you start building this confidence. And you know, along the way, you have all these other life experiences happen that you're balancing. And at the same time, you just have this gratitude of life and you realize how precious life is, that it's this gift and that, you know, tomorrow isn't promised. And so I think each year you gain a little bit more comfort and confidence. You know, you never, even now, you never lose that fear. And, you know, sometimes you get a headache and you're like, what if it's more than a headache? And that's still something you deal with. Here I am 16 years later and it's still something I navigate. I think one of the hardest things that I never saw coming after that was 10 years later. I woke up, it was October 1st, 2017. And I remember looking at my phone and thinking, oh my gosh, it's October 1st. So I know it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It also reminded me of where I was a decade ago. So I'm thinking, wow, 10 years ago, October 1st, I had this whole month ahead of me that was gonna include surgery, starting chemo, preserving my fertility, losing my hair. And it just kind of all came back to me. And I looked at my husband that morning and we happened to be in Las Vegas. We were at the three-day music festival, Route 91. And we were going to go get a couple's massage. And it was not at the hotel we were staying at. So we drove there. And I tell you, this was like this conversation would save my life that night. Had no idea. We got into this conversation, Jason and I, it's my husband, and 
we just kind of started talking, you know, I'm like, oh, can you believe it's October 1st and where we were 10 years ago on this day? And it was this conversation that was very deep and personal. And I'm going to share it because I've talked about it. And we kind of relived what we'd been through in that last 10 years. And it was very much like, God, can you believe when the doctors didn't even know you were going to make it and the odds were stacked against you? All the things that we went through as a couple, very, very hard on a marriage to go through cancer and treatment. And we had some laughs in there. There was definitely some pauses for some grief. You know, we talked about we'd moved like several times to different areas throughout California in the last 10 years. We had had some career changes. I had gone back to school and got a second degree. My husband was getting ready to as well. So it was this reflection. And, you know, we talked, we had gotten pregnant and we had unfortunately lost our only child. So there was moments of pause for grief and to talk about those losses and how they impacted us. But there was also a big space in that conversation where we talked about how far we've come when things didn't look so great. and. Those obstacles were so huge. We didn't even know what was on that other end, how we were ever going to get there. And we did it. We made it through. And I'm so grateful. I didn't know how much I needed that talk because later that night was the largest mass shooting in the history of the United States. So let's just pause there for one sec. So you find yourself in Las Vegas at this festival. Was this in recognition of what you had been through? Did you just happen to be a country music fan or how did you get to that point? Yeah, so I love country music, always been a fan. And my best friend had made plans to go there. And my brother-in-law had also been wanting to go there. And I think that it was just a great coincidence that we happened to be there around that time. And so when Jason and I both realized the timing of it, it's a celebration for us. And we went into it in that day celebrating what we had been through. And 10 years of remission is a huge deal. You're taking this time to reflect. You're in the car. You have no idea what's about to happen, but you're having this celebratory, but also room for grief. This is the perfectly imperfect journey. Nobody gets a super free, easy pass, right? You've had a higher burden than some, but you're sort of taking this time with Jason to really reflect on, on everything that's happened over the 10 years. So then you go to the concert, what, that night or sometime in the afternoon or something. And are you with your girlfriends or with Jason or what happens next? So that day, Jason and I just had such an amazing couple day. We had lunch with some friends that lived there. We had a really nice dinner, just the two of us. And this was the third and last day of the music festival. And Jason was a little bit tapped out. So he was like, do you care if I stay in the room? And I was like, no. So after dinner, he walked me down. We're staying at the Delano, which is next door to the Mandalay Bay, which is where the shooter shot from. And we have this picture, actually, after dinner, Jason walks me down because we ate dinner at Mandalay Bay, walks me down to the bottom and take this picture of us having no idea that 32 floors directly above us is this person that's going to go on the shooting spree. And he, you know, gets me across the street. I meet my girlfriends at the front. And we walk in and think we're going to have this amazing night listening to Jason Aldean, one of my favorite singers. And, you know, a lot of people say this. It was the best night until it wasn't. 
I remember we were standing there and I looked over at my girlfriend. She kind of mouthed fireworks to me and I kind of nodded and like looked up thinking, it doesn't really sound like fireworks though. And I looked up and I didn't see any fireworks and Jason Aldean still singing on stage. The next thing I know, it felt like the worst pain I've ever experienced, searing hot pain in my face. I, you know, it took me a second to realize what had happened. I didn't really hear any sound for a few seconds. The impact on my face was so severe that it stunned me. And the next sound I really registered was the sound of automatic gunfire. And that's when I realized that we were under fire and that I had been shot in the face. You said that's when I realized. So what's happening for you when this is all happening? Like I thought maybe I'd been hit because it was so strong and sudden and my face was on fire. It felt like, and I was so dazed that I'm trying, I'm looking around thinking like what just hit me. And then I think hearing the sound, you make the connections. And and at this point, Jason Aldean's still singing on stage for a few seconds. So I'm thinking, wow, he doesn't even realize what's happening. And pure panic is just starting to explode around me as everybody's kind of registering to what's happening. You know, there was 22,000 people in attendance that night. So it's this huge amount of people. And Jason Aldean stopped singing, goes off the stage, the lights come on, the rounds are going, the screaming, you know, I don't think I'll ever unhear those screams. They're so unlike anything else, the cries of people in that situation. And I remember thinking that there's no way I survived cancer and all of the things that have happened to me and remained in remission to die here tonight if I have anything to do with it. And immediately that conversation that I had had with Jason earlier that day in the car, it was like this lightning bolt to my heart, you know, like resuscitation in this moment of pure panic. I have so much to live for. There's so much here for me and I'm not going to go through all of this that I've been through to let some madman end it right here. Exactly. It's interesting because, you know, we were under fire for 11 minutes and some parts of that are very slow motion for me and some parts are very sped up. And there was definitely this pause of slow motion it felt like where I kind of relived the last parts of my life. And it kind of gave me a whiplash into the current moment that I was in. And I thought about all the times that the odds were stacked against me, that somebody said I might not make it, that it didn't look good, that I had this life-threatening disease happening to me and it felt very helpless and out of control. And I thought, but I did make it and I did persevere. I am a fighter. I have what it takes and I don't know what's going to happen in the next minute or five minutes or five hours, but I got to do everything I can right now to get out of here and save myself. So what happened next? It was pretty horrible because you hear the people crying for help and, you know, there'd be gunfire and then there'd be a pause and people would get up and start to run and you're so disoriented. You know, there's part of you 
that wants to stay down on the ground. You don't know what's safe. Now we know all the facts of where he was and what happened. But in those moments, you don't know if people are inside the venue shooting, if there's multiple shooters. Your mind's just going crazy. I'm thinking our bomb's going to start exploding. Anything is possible at this point. You see these movies and all of a sudden it's very real life. And there's nobody coming in to save you in that moment. So I stayed on the ground for the majority of the shooting, probably the, I don't know, I want to say eight minutes. And you were shot right in the very beginning of the shooting, right? Correct. The only reason I know is because Jason Aldean was still on stage singing because I was trying to register what happened to me and I'm seeing him sing on stage for several seconds. And, you know, I remember laying on the ground and there had been a girl that had been standing behind me, a stranger who I've become friends with now. That's a wonderful person. And she literally took a shirt off her back to give to me, to hold to my face. And, you know, at this point, I'd been in the medical field still. I went back to school and got a degree in diagnostic ultrasound. So I'd been in ultrasound and working with patients and doing procedures. So I think part of me was thinking about that, like, can I move? Can I get up and run? Are my extremities working? It was really hard to communicate. I remember trying to use my phone. It was really difficult. You know, like there was just blood everywhere and my hand felt like it was on fire. And I learned later I'd had a bunch of shrapnel hit my hand. So I was laying on the ground and at one point we decided to get up and run. And I don't think there's any life experiences that can prepare you for seeing that kind of carnage around you. You know, you hear the sounds and people are crying for help. And then I got up and that's when I really saw for the first time, you know, when I was down on the ground, I think there was a part of me that was like doing this pep talk for myself. Like, we're going to get through this, whatever we need to do, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. And I had to keep telling myself that to keep it together. And I remember thinking, don't fall apart until you get to Jason. Once you get to Jason, you can lose it. You can totally come unglued, but until then you better keep it together. Because you have to get yourself out of here, Natalie. Like, this is what I'm telling myself. And I'm saying, like, all of these people are crying, but we're going to be okay. And I get up. And I realize not everybody's going to be okay. Because you see people that you know aren't going to go home that night. And that their parents or their spouse or their children are going to be receiving a call that nobody wants to get. And that those people are somebody, somebody. It was so hard to keep running past them. There's this part of me that's like, you you can't help them now. You know, it's very obvious that they, they were gone. But to keep running past felt so inhumane too. And those images and seeing that, it just changes something in you. And I remember that was such a slow motion part of me. You know, I'm running on adrenaline. I've been shot in the face. I know that I need to get emergency care right away. That I'm not, I need to see about getting myself to a doctor or an emergency room. I know that. And we get to this barrier fence and people are just pushing things over, doing whatever they need to get out. It's such a chaotic scene. And at the same time, the amount of strangers helping strangers, I will never forget. I mean, the amount of people that risked their lives for other people that night 
is where the true heroes are. And this huge cowboy comes up from behind me and I'm short, I'm five, two and I'm injured. And he literally like is lifting me up over this fence and I stumble over it. And this next round of fire starts next to a gunshot. And we all start to just try to take cover where we can. And I realize I don't have my phone anymore. And this person across from me I've never met before is on her phone. And I ask her, you know, I can barely talk if I can borrow it. Because I want to text Jason, my husband, and tell him that I love him. And I look over and I see the security guard person. He's wearing a staff shirt. Has been shot and he's slumped over. And I know that he's no longer with us. And I think, you know, he's just showed up to do his job tonight. And so the next thing I know, the fence is broken open. People start to run out. There's a pause in the gunfire. So we get up to run. And now we're outside of the venue. And people are just running and screaming everywhere, covered in blood. And we're run to the Tropicana, the employee entrance. And we get back there and there's people triaging and helping people. And at this point, obviously don't know what I look like or how bad my injuries are. But I'll never forget as I got to the Tropicana that people had been lining up that had ran there from the concert. And they saw me and the look that they gave me based on how I looked it made me scared because I was registering what they were seeing by how bad I looked. Plus you were seeing all of their trauma and their pain. So it's all of this all at the same time. Yes. You're definitely like seeing these people who the fear, we don't know if we're safe. We don't know what's going to happen next. You know, when you think about it, we're very blessed every day we leave our home, we get in our car or walk or go where we need to go to the store, wherever errands we're at. And we're safe. We never really think about our safety and how one person can take that away in a second. And I was very lucky. There was a doctor, a nurse, an EMT that had been at the concert. They were now, you know, at the Tropicana. There was a probation officer and they were helping to triage people. And they got me to a back room and I credit them for saving my life. They've become very good friends today, and they made sure I got in an ambulance and got to the hospital and kept me alive until that point. And I'm very grateful because by the time I got to the hospital, I had lost a third of my blood supply and my airway was starting to close. I literally would have bled to death or all of the area in my neck and mouth area would have closed and I would have had a hard time breathing if I hadn't gotten to the hospital when I did. And they immediately took me back. They immediately intubated me. I needed an emergency blood transfusion. And has Jason, your husband, found you yet by this point? So when we were at the Tropicana, I actually asked somebody if I could borrow their phone. And I was trying to tell them I wanted to call my husband and... I'm going to age myself here and say, I'm so old that I remember his number by heart. That's how you know you've been before you relied on smartphones. You had to remember people's number. That's right. So, I mean, there was a hidden blessing. I knew his number by heart. So I was able to ask somebody to call and they were able to tell him where the ambulance was going to take me. 
Could you even really speak at this point? I could speak, but it was mumbled. Jason said he could understand me. And I think people around me could understand what I was saying, but it felt very uncomfortable to speak. We found out later that the bullet had basically shattered my whole left jawbone. So I no longer had a jawbone connecting. And it had also, there's two nerves that run through the side of our face. One controls movement and one controls sensation. So they had both been destroyed on impact. So I was having a lot of paralysis on the left side of my face trying to talk. And at the same time, like I didn't have a jawbone and then my chin had been fractured in half. So I could talk, but it wasn't a hundred percent clear but enough that people could, you know, understand what I was saying. So Jason knew what hospital we were going to, and he found me in a hall. So he tells me this story later that he got there and the hospital was on lockdown. You couldn't even pull in at that point. And he was able to talk to the police officer working and tell him like, you know, my wife's there. She was shot in the face. Here's my identification. Please let me find her. And, you know, by miracle, they let him in. And so they were trying to find me and a lot of people didn't have their ID on them that night. We had bracelets and you could electronically upload your debit card or credit card. So a lot of people didn't have IDs. And so everybody was given the last name trauma. So they were looking for me under Natalie trauma. They couldn't find me. They're like, are you sure she was taken here? And he's like, yes. And they had almost kind of given up trying to find me. And he said that they passed this hallway and as they were turning he saw somebody in a bed and half their clothes were cut off they were covered in blood they were intubated and he said it looked like a grenade had exploded from the inside out of their lower face and as he was passing that person he saw the braid in my hair that caught his attention in all of the chaos of what was going on that night in the hospital And so he was able to stay with me. I was at Sunrise Hospital. They received the majority of the gunshot wounds that night. So they were willing to take whatever help they could get. So he was helping, you know, move me on and off the CT machine, get my clothes off so they could check for other injuries. But that's how he ended up finding me. So something I didn't mention in the introduction is the documentary 11 Minutes of which you were one of the people highlighted in the documentary. And as I'm listening to you tell this story, I'm thinking about one of the things you said in the documentary was, and I'm just going to quote it, that night one person showed evil, and since then hundreds of thousands have shown kindness. And to me, that's where I want the focus to be and where I want to be, trusting other people to be good people. And it just is so striking to me that after that level of trauma that most of us cannot even begin to imagine, that you are still able to trust and believe that most people are good people. And I'm just so curious, where where does that ability come from in you, or how have you cultivated that ability to still trust other people to be good people? It's not always easy, especially after the shooting. It was really hard for me to go into public. My post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety are something I still work with. But it is really humanity that I believe will save this world, the good of humanity. 
and the kindness, because I think that the majority of people in this world are kind, good people that want to do the right thing. And that night, so many people stepped up for other people. And I saw it. I experienced it. I made a decision. Where did I want to put my energy into? Did I want to concentrate on this one person that did this horrible, evil thing? Would that help me? That's not going to heal me. You know what's going to heal me? Is concentrating on all the goodness of the people of that night. And how lucky I was. All these angels put in my path that saved my life that saved other people's lives, that thought about others before themselves. That's where my faith in humanity is renewed. And that's where my faith in general is renewed is humanity. Because I think that given the opportunity, most people are going to do the right thing. And nobody's perfect in this world. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. We all have. But we get to show up each day and make something good happen. And, you know, it's like if, if you can't find a good, kind person then be that person. And that's something I truly believe in my heart. Natalie, I think we could continue sitting here riveted hearing the rest of your story. And there's quite a bit more to tell. We're sort of nearing the end of our time together. And so I just, I'd love for you to be able to tell us how you're doing now. It's six years, I think, since the event, I'm just going to say. And so how have those six years been for you? How are you doing now? It's been hard, you know. I've had over a dozen surgeries to rebuild my left jaw, my face, and I've had a lot of complications and nerve grafts. You start to heal the physical parts, and then the hard work comes, the emotional parts. And that's still an ongoing thing. And the impacts of that night are a lifetime consequence for the victims. And another layer for those who were shot and injured. And I have chronic pain for the rest of my life. I have lead poisoning from the bullets and shrapnel that are stuck in my face that can't be removed. So there's all these kind of pieces. I'm better. I'm well. I'm healing. I'm more myself today in a lot of ways. But I'll never be that same person. You have to grieve that life. And... I'm putting my focus into action. I think a lot of times we feel helpless and hopeless and we're not. And we have to remember that. And part of that for me is giving back. I sit on the board for the breast cancer fundraiser. It's a local nonprofit here. And I'm also almost done with the application process to become a volunteer through Mission Hospital where I was in ICU multiple times and they did a lot of my surgeries and recovery. So the ability to give back is huge for me. It's very healing and I'm just building my life. And I think that's going to be an ongoing thing and just appreciating each day. It's really, truly a gift and the bad days are horrible, but they make the better days that much sweeter. You know, Natalie, normally we ask you to think about some advice that you would give your younger self, but I'm going to break our rules here a little bit, and I'd love for you to future cast, and I would love for you to think about your future self and what your future self 10 years from now might tell you today. I hope that she's going to say, 
Look how far you've come, even on the days that you didn't think that you could get out of bed and face the world. Here you are doing all the things that make you happy, being a wife, a daughter, an auntie, giving back, helping the people that helped you, making sure nobody feels like they're alone on this journey during cancer or life. And now I hope she's proud of me. So easy to get this hardened heart when all these horrible things happen to us. And you kind of talked about a scorecard earlier. And it's so true. You know, we think we check off the scorecard during life and we're like, okay, we're good. This horrible thing happened. I had cancer when I was 27. Like I've done my hard time. And then, you know, life is like, nope, 10 years later, you're going to get shot and almost die again. There's no scorecard. You just got to be prepared for each day and put your best self forward. And that's what I try to do. And so I hope in 10 years, my future self sees that. And, you know, I don't want to be hardened by this life. I want to remain the good, kind hearted person I strive to be. Well, in my world, that future self of you does exist and is already looking back and is immensely proud of you for all the wisdom you are out in the world spreading. And, you know, when you and I talked, you made the distinction between being positive and not sliding into toxic positivity. And I think that's just another way you're doing such important work is that you can be positive and still be grounded in the reality of what has happened and still make the choice to see the good in the world and to see the kindness in the world. And that's just such a gift. Thank you. Absolutely. So Natalie, thank you so, so much for being with us today. As Anne said, we could keep this conversation going for an hour, so we might have to just have another one. Uh, <laughs> but part two in, coming soon. Part two, okay, exactly. <laughs> but for now, we will have links in the show notes to Natalie's website, her Instagram. We'll have a link in there to the documentary, 11 Minutes. It is brutal to watch, but so, so worth watching and some other ways that you can follow her. So I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And we're also starting to cook up some new offerings. We'll have more info on that soon. But if you want to be the first to know, head over to flowingeastandwest.com to join our mailing list. We promise to never spam you, but we do hope to bring you some exciting programming in alignment with the podcast. And until then, please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.